our elders yesterday were at a, a meeting together, and uh, I leaned over to Nate uh, Feldmuth, and I said, uh, I'm preaching on John 6 tomorrow. And he said, I don't think I've ever heard a message on John 6. And uh, I think I know why <laughs> in terms of preparing it. Because this, you know that words have power. And sometimes when words are spoken at the right time, they inspire us. Sometimes they can lift our vision and they can just refresh our souls. But you also know that words at the wrong time, whether they're spoken in anger, they have the ability to quench our spirit. They can really seriously offend us. And the power of words is so unmistakable, it has cost people their jobs. In fact, two weeks ago, the president of the PGA, Professional Golf Association of America, made a statement about a European golfer, and he was fired the next day. Uh, you might remember other instances where people have spoken words. Don Imus on radio years ago fired because he made a racial statement. And so statement can cause listeners to scratch their heads. And I want to explore today one of the most outrageous statements that Jesus ever made. He made, uh, this is kind of Jesus uncensored today. You know, he said things like, if your right eye offends you, cut it up, gouge it out. If your, if your hand offends you, cut it off. I mean, these are, this is one of those statements today that we're going to hear. And we know that when Jesus made this statement that we're going to look at, that a lot of people said that, I can't go any further with you. They abandoned him and they wouldn't walk with him anymore. And this is found in John 6. Now, I hope everybody has a study notes. And if you don't have them, could you just raise your head and Ken, and Ken will get you one. Because we're all going to need them today, not only for uh, the message, but for what's happening at the end of the message. So there, there's somebody over there that needs one. Anybody need one up here close to the front? Here you go. Okay, great. So if you open up your study notes, John 6, 60, on hearing it, this is, this is Jesus' outrageous statement that we're going to look at. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And then down to verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So the question is, what was so shocking that Jesus said and so difficult for them to hear? Well, if you go a little bit further back, where we just read verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then you drop down to verse 30, 41. The people are immediately offended. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down for heaven? But then Jesus goes even further and he causes even greater dissension when he says, look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is the real food, and my blood is the real drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Now, listen, let's try to imagine this. As if we were among the original hearers, and the very first time we say, we hear Jesus say, eat my flesh and drink my blood. 
That would be shocking on many levels, especially if you're a Jew. Because first of all, drinking blood would have been forbidden. In fact, even with their meat, they would have to drain all the blood out. You would never have a medium rare steak if you were a Jew. Because there wouldn't be any blood left after, after they had done things in, in terms of their kosher ways. By drinking human blood, this would have been such a foreign idea to them, they wouldn't have even been able to comprehend it. I don't think we would have been able to either. And then they struggle with this statement that Jesus said that he had come down from heaven and he was the source of eternal life. So what does he mean? Well, clearly, I don't think he's talking about cannibalism here. Jesus lets them know that his words are to be understood in a spiritual sense. Look down at verse 63. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. And yet there are some of you who do not believe. So I think he's using a powerful metaphor here to describe his purpose for coming to, to, to earth. And by the way, this conversation or this statement foreshadows another scene with Jesus where you think about eating bread and drinking. This is my body. This is my blood, which is shed for you. And that's the Last Supper. And although this situation in John 6 isn't referring to the Last Supper, we can look back now as Jesus makes these statements at the Last Supper to maybe what he was referring to. There's a connection, I believe, in understanding. This is my body as he held up the bread. Jesus had invited his disciples to come along for a dinner, and they didn't know it was going to be the last time they would be having dinner together. In the New Testament, there are four different accounts of the Last Supper, and the one we're going to look at today is in Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 14. It says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Verse 19, and he took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So I think to fully understand what we're talking about here, this Last Supper, we have to go back to the backdrop of the Old Testament. And most likely the disciples had had previous Passovers with Jesus. They'd been with him for three years. So they would have had, I think, a couple Passovers. And Jesus says on this one, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. And the Passover meal for the Jewish people was kind of a tradition in remembering their deliverance from Israel. And you know the story about how God had said he was going to send the angel of death and the firstborn child would be, be killed. But if the Jews, the Israelites, would put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, the angel of death would pass over. And so as a way of remembering that night, they celebrated God's deliverance by having a Passover meal on an annual basis. And this meal always included unleavened bread. Does anybody know for $20 on a trip for two to Disney World why they had unleavened bread? That's right. Because as soon as the angel of death came over and Pharaoh was going to let him go, they had to be able to leave on a moment's notice so the bread didn't have time to rise. And so that's, the, that's why they always celebrate it with unleavened bread. And there's many churches today who, you, you know, when you go and you have communion there, they will use unleavened bread. We use gluten-free bread here. But uh, anyway, that's just so Joanne doesn't have to mention it later. Uh, so. so anyway, the, the disciples have grown up celebrating this Passover meal. 
So imagine the moment that you're going to eat with Jesus. The meal is coinciding with the Passover. And now you can see the drama of the situation. Jesus holds up the bread. Instead of distributing it and saying, hey, here's a memorial to the Passover. He says, I'm announcing a new plan and a new covenant. And he points to himself as the bread of life. And he points to himself as the substitute lamb whose blood would save them. And at this point, I don't think the disciples understood what was going to happen the next day when Jesus would hang on the cross. The Lamb of God who would be shed, whose blood would be shed for them. Now there's one other part of the Passover ritual which I think is really cool. And I only learned this in the last couple of years. I went to a Seder. And uh, one of the things that they do is they take a cup and everybody has a cup. And they have this one cup that's at the edge of the table like this. And nothing happens to it. It's just sitting there the whole meal. And the reason is, is the Jews believe that what if the Messiah was to come while we're having the Passover dinner? There would be a cup there for the Messiah. And most biblical scholars believe that what Jesus did is he gets to the end of the Passover dinner and he picks up the cup of the Messiah. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood declaring that he himself is the Messiah that has arrived right there at that dinner. And so it's kind of, a, of an interesting thing to me. I don't know, it might not be to you, but uh, uh, that he was the one that was going to save them from their sins, that he was the chosen one, that it was his blood that was going to be poured out for their sins. So the next few minutes, what I'd like us to do is just to work through, uh, kind of to come to an understanding of what the scriptures clearly teach about what happens at what we call the sacrament. So we can get a little bit of perspective, not only from the scriptures, but from church history. And then we're going to have an opportunity to have communion together. So what's a sacrament in the first place? Well, for, it's, a, it's, it's referred to as like a holy ordinance or an action that was instituted by Christ. And, in, and I think why this is so important is that this isn't a man-made-up thing. Somebody just says, hey, how can we remember Jesus? I know. Let's have, a, let's have a communion service. No, Jesus instituted it. And it's God's idea to show outwardly what we believe internally. Essentially, there are two sacraments in the Christian faith. One is baptism and the other is communion. And so the sacrament of communion is intended to be an expression of this covenant that Jesus was talking about. And I think there are three purposes of the Lord's Supper. First of all, it's to remember. Then it's to participate. And then it's to declare. So first of all, remembering. Jesus knew that we're so easily distracted and we're far too often we forget the wonder of grace and what it was like that when we came to that realization that God loves me in spite of who I am. And it just is a reminder again of, of what Christ has done on my behalf. Somebody, I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer one time say, the good thing about having communion and service, at least we know the gospel is going to be proclaimed. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll be reminded of that. But whatever the word remembering means to you, in Scripture, it wasn't just a passive, oh yeah, I remember that. But there was an active remembering. And so rather than retelling the story of Jesus by his death, what we do is we break the bread and we pour the cup. And in so doing, we're reminded of what Christ has sacrificed on our behalf. The second purpose is to participate. You know, it's really significant that Jesus didn't tell us to just look at the bread and look at the cup and admire it. But he asked us to eat a piece of the bread and to drink some of the cup. And I think he did it deliberately. 
You know, the word that's translated participation actually comes from a Greek word that's koinonia. Now, some of you may have heard that word koinonia before. I don't know if you know what it means, but it's translated fellowship in the New Testament. And so communion was intended to be an action where we participate together with other believers and together we remember what Christ has done for us. Remember back when we were studying the, the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us. There's a corporateness in, in this. And so, so in that sense, that's one of the purposes. Another purpose is to declare. It's not just to remember the past. Jesus said that he wasn't going to drink of the vine until he drinks in the new kingdom. And when the Apostle Paul describes this, and I put this in your study notes, the Lord's Lord's Supper, he says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26, for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so when we take time to celebrate communion together, you and I are singling our hope, our strong hope and our belief that one day the Savior is going to physically return and then hopefully in that day it will be the most joyous day that we have. And so the Lord's Supper was initiated by Christ as a means of Reminding us through his death and resurrection, we remember, we participate in it, and we declare it to each generation throughout the course of history. Now, one of the, the guys that I've really enjoyed reading recently is a guy by the name of Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. And here's what he says in his book, Simply Christian. The real reason the living Jesus, the Jesus who dwells in heaven and rules over all earth, the Jesus who has brought God's future into the present wants not just to influence us, but to rescue us. Not just to inform us, but to heal us. Not just to give us something to think about, but to feed us and to feed us with himself. That's what this meal is all about. Yet somehow through the centuries in church history, believers have managed to lose sight of what the purpose of this sacrament is. You know, entire denominations and communities of Christians have argued, and ultimately they've separated over issues that related to the practice of communion. Some of you were raised in churches where you have a different view of the Lord's Supper than we do here at Water's Edge. And so let's just take a moment, and I want to show you some of these differences. First of all, all the way back in the early church, Paul's records indicate, as well as church history, that the first Christians always celebrated the Lord's table at a meal together. They sometimes called it a love feast. My former church, every, the Sunday night before Thanksgiving, we always had an all-church love feast where we had communion. And uh, that's how they did it in the early church. Now, we have to you know, be fair and say in the early church, they, uh, they lived in houses. <laughs> so that made a lot of sense. They didn't, they didn't have church buildings. And uh, they, so they'd be in private homes. And, and there was, we're told that the rich and poor would come together. They were all on the same footing when they came to one of these love feasts. And they ate a simple meal together. And one of the things that historians tell us is that they would hear reports about what was happening in other house churches. And then they would also encourage one another. And do you know that the remnants of everything that was left over from the love feast, they would always give to the poor. Now, there's a lot of things we do in life that we don't know why we do them. I don't know if you heard the story about the, the little girl who said, Mommy, why do you cut the ends off the ham? She says, I really don't know. My mother used to cut the ends off the ham. So she called her mother and she said, Mom, why do we cut the ends off the ham? And she says, well, we didn't have a pan big enough to hold it. 
So we do things for re we don't understand all the reasons. Let me tell you why we ask you to bring a bag of groceries every communion Sunday. Because in the early church, they always gave the leftover food to the poor. And so there's a, there's a, madness, there's a method behind our madness of saying, when you come on communion Sundays, the first Sunday of every month, bring a bag of groceries so that we can, having celebrated the Lord's table, we can give to the poor as well. And that's why we do it. So if you thought it was just filling food banks, no. There's, there is a reason behind it. So gradually, these gatherings began to be eliminated as feasts, and then they would just, pretty much as they were gathering in centers, they, the, the, everything focused around the word of God, and that would be followed by the distribution of bread and wine. And most of us are familiar with that method. We tend to do it here. But whenever communion was served, it was usually the most solemn part of the service. The term Eucharistia, which comes from the, the, the word Eucharist, uh, it, it became a substitute for the breaking of bread. So if you want to know what they used to call communion in the early church, it was, we're going to have the breaking of bread. In fact, if you look at the book of Acts, chapter 2, it says they went from home to home and they had the breaking of bread. They had communion together in, in their homes. And so Eucharist kind of means thanksgiving, by the way. It's translated that way. It's not a word that's ever used in the Bible, but it kind of has found its way into the church in the 4th and 5th centuries. And so great care was taken then because the Eucharist now, this Thanksgiving, this communion was now elevated to a point where we better be very careful with it. It used to be done in a common way at the table, but now we better be very careful. We don't want to spill anything. And the ceremony became more elaborate and people started to tremble a little more because they'd have to go forward to get the communion. And then by the fourth century, we see that they started to use all kinds of ornaments and different vessels and it became a very fancy type of celebration. But it wasn't until the ninth century that the actual doctrine of communion became a source of controversy in the church. And the disagreement centered around this one question. When Jesus said, this is my body, and this is my blood. What did he mean? Like in John chapter 6 when he says to those gathered, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And to understand what I wanted to find for you, I want you to know that there's four essential views about what that means throughout church history. The first one occurred in 17, or 1079 and then it was made official church doctrine in the Catholic Church in 1215. And that is what's called transubstantiation. And essentially what that means is the bread and the wine that are blessed by the priest, they actually are changed into the substance of the body and blood of Christ. This is a doctrine that's held by the Roman Catholic Church even today and also in many Anglican churches. And those who hold this view, they treat the, the elements of bread and wine as though they truly are the human body and blood of Christ. And therefore, they take tremendous care over those elements. In fact, for several years in the Roman Catholic Church, a parishioner could only receive the bread. The priest was the only one who could drink the cup. And, uh, and then the reformers came along, including Martin Luther. And they disagreed with this idea of transubstantiation. And the Lutherans held to what I guess you could call a more moderate view, which is consubstantiation. By the way, Lutherans hate it that other Protestants call it that. But I, that's what I think it is. It, and it's a little bit harder to understand. Here's what Luther said. The body of Christ is present and offered under the bread, with the bread, and in the bread. Perfectly clear, right? <laughs> yes. 
that, that there's a mysterious and a sacramental union that's caused by the Holy Spirit. And, and here's the deal for, for Lutherans. The, the bread and the wine are not physically and chemically changed, but they are still the body and blood of Christ through a mystical kind of moment that takes place when they're blessed. Now, many denominations believe, and here's a third view, that the, the Lord's Supper is kind of a symbolic act of remembrance of what Christ did on the cross. This view is called the memorialism point of view. The bread and the cup symbolize the broken body and the blood of Christ. And then the fourth view, John Calvin. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> you know, like E.F. Hutton. Uh, no. He insisted that the true presence of Christ is there, but it's in his divine nature and not in his human nature. One of the things that Calvin argued is, how could Jesus, the night before he's betrayed, he hasn't even died yet, and he says, this is my body and this is my blood. That was one of his arguments. The other thing is, he says, is that Christ's physical body was taken up into heaven, and so how do you take the physical body of Christ? And so he says, no, when, when Christ gave his Holy Spirit, he said, you know, that, that's, that's how we receive Christ by way of his spirit. And so he says, no, this is not a physical body and blood of Christ, but in a spiritual sense. This is the spiritual body and blood of Christ. And that somehow the Holy Spirit bonds us as believers in union with Christ. And uh, so we, when we partake, what he says is it's a spiritual nourishment. Uh, it's the power of the Holy Spirit who nourishes us spiritually through the blood and the body of Christ, through the bread and the, and the wine. And, and to try to clear this up, I was talking to Mark Brewer a couple of years ago. He's the former pastor of Bel Air Church and kind of an interesting guy. And he says, oh, Bill, I can sum that up for you really easily. He said, the Catholics believe that the bread becomes Christ's body and the wine becomes his blood. The reformers came along and they said the bread stays bread and the wine stays wine. And then the Baptists said that the bread stays bread, but the wine turns into grape juice. <laughs> so I hope that clears things up for you. Uh, now, one of the reasons we often use grape juice here is only because there's so many people in our society who struggle with alcoholism. And so we don't want to put a temptation or in some way cause them to stumble. So that's why, why we, we use grape juice here. But uh, I hope... Uh, I should probably make one other comment about another view. The Quakers and the Salvation Army Church, they don't practice communion in any way at worship because they don't think that Jesus intended for this to be perpetually mandated, that it was a one-time and a one-time only type of thing. So what's interesting is all the other Christian denominations, they participate in communion, but they're not consistent about how often they take it. In some churches, believers still partake of the Lord's Supper on a daily basis. Other people take it every week. In fact, up at Bel Air, every Sunday night, communion is served. In some churches, like Water's Edge, we participate once a month. But believe it or not, all these churches have views that are pretty similar, and that's this. It's never to be celebrated privately. It's always considered to be a communal thing. At least two or three receiving the elements together. When I was a high school student, I think I was a 10th grader, my dad came to me one day and he said, Bill, would you go with me to visit Mrs. White? The reason was 
that none of the elders was available and there was no way he was going to just serve communion with him and her. Because he believed communion should be done in community and not just privately. I thought that was interesting. My best friend Paul Riddell, when he went to be married, my dad was going to perform the ceremony and, and Paul said, Ellen and I want to take communion up on the, on the altar. And my dad said, well, will you be serving it to everybody in the congregation? And he said, no. And my dad said, then I won't do it. Because whenever the table is there, it's communal. This is for everyone to participate. It's not a private type of thing. And so now you can see how a church's view on communion has huge implications for its worship gathering. At Bel Air, uh, oftentimes we'll take communion uh, to people who are shut-ins. We never go with just the pastor. We always take at least a deacon or an elder with us, so we never do it in private. For a devout Catholic, nothing can be more significant than the moment when the Eucharist is offered to God. If you've ever attended a Catholic Mass, and I know many of you have, and, and I have, and you know that the centerpiece of that service is the communion time. The first time I did this was I was a high school student. I had a friend named Tony Trani, and uh, they had great basketball over at their gym at St. Paul's Catholic, and and so if I went to Mass with them, we could play basketball afterwards. And I have to tell you, it was very awkward and very uncomfortable for me. Tony knew that I was completely lost, and so he handed me a liturgy. And luckily, it had just been changed from Latin into English. And uh, here's the thing. We got time to celebrate the sacrament, the communion time. And I was so impressed with how reverently they treated these elements. It was a real moment for them. And I thought, you know, we might have different theologies, but I thought there was something I could learn in that moment. And there was a sense of awe and respect for those folks. It was very evident, and it marked me. I think it's unfortunate that the, unfortunate that the practice of the Lord's Supper, instituted by our Savior, has resulted in so much dissension over the centuries. I'm sure that Jesus envisioned that communion would bring unity, and we'd be giving thanks, we'd be remembering together. So who's allowed to participate? What are the prerequisites? Well, surprise, surprise, the church has not always agreed on this one either. And in some churches, only those who have already been baptized are allowed to take communion. Other churches say that you have to be a member of that church in order to participate in the sacrament. I'm an ordained Reformed Church in America pastor. And years ago, uh, a dissension came up in the Reformed Church, this is the Dutch Reformed Church, that started the Christian Reformed Church, so there's two denominations now, over this issue of communion. Because some of the elders said, listen, if Jesus Christ is your Savior, you're welcome to come to this table. And the Christian Reformers said, well, wait a second, how do we know what their spiritual condition? We can't just open up the table to anybody. If they're not a member of the church, they can't come. And so in the Christian Reformed Church, if you're not a member of that specific church, you're not welcome at the table. And so this, you can see how this is, over the years, different people have different views about this. So, uh, let me just make a couple comments on this before we take our communion. The Apostle Paul warns us that we should not take lightly our participation in this table. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven in your study notes. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Wow. So what's an unworthy manner? 
Well, the Bible indicates there are three clear prerequisites for participating in communion. And the first one is that it should never be offered to non-believers. And therefore, those who have identified themselves as followers of Christ and have personally received God's grace of forgiveness and salvation, they should participate. And so if you're here and you're not clear yet about whether you've crossed the line of faith or whether you've decided to follow Jesus as your leader for life, then you should just take a pass on the Lord's Supper when it's offered. And our hope is that one day you may have made that decision to receive God's grace and forgiveness and join us. The second prerequisite applies to those of us who are believers. We should not participate in the Lord's Supper if we are in sinful rebellion, willfully disobeying God and have no intention of being repentant about it. Now let's be clear here, extremely clear. Not one of us in this room is perfect. None of us. And so we come to the table with a spirit of brokenness about our sins and we have a desire to confess and to receive God's forgiveness. And if you're shaking your fist at God and you're willfully disobeying him in a certain area of your life, then I think you should just pass on this until you're really ready to turn back and say, I'm sorry. The third thing is you shouldn't participate in communion if you're at odds with another believer. If you are if you're unwilling to even attempt a reconciliation or if in some way you're causing division in relationships with other people. And once again, the Bible teaches and Paul teaches that we need to be at peace with others as far as it depends on us. So if you've attempted to reconcile with another person and they're unwilling, then you're welcome to the Lord's table. But if you're holding tightly to bitterness and to anger, and if you're completely unwilling to forgive someone else, then the Bible says that you're not to come and celebrate the forgiveness of God until you've extended it. And you're willing to make right and take steps of of reconciliation. And then finally, when we come to this table, what must I do to prepare for it? Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 28, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, I think these days, people don't spend a whole lot of time in self-examination. Maybe we're afraid if we look too closely at our attitudes or our words or actions, we might see stuff we really don't want to see. And so we harbor a lot of secrets. In fact, I don't know if you know that because of this need for confession, there's now an internet site where you can go and you can confess anonymously. And people write what it is they've done or what they've said or what they deeply regret, and somehow they found power in admitting their sin. And when we come to the Lord's table, we have an opportunity to make sure that we're not taking our sin lightly. We have the opportunity to confess those sin to God and then to receive his gift of grace and forgiveness. You know, when I was growing up, I'd say my prayers at night, usually with my mom and dad, and I always inserted this little line. Oh, and Lord, forgive me for all my sins. Kind of a blanket coverage. You know, I figure that will cover everything. But it's pretty general, wasn't it? I was kind of looking for that that forgiveness for anything I might have done wrong, but I surely wasn't examining myself closely and confessing specifically the sins that were in my life. I mean, think about this in terms of a family relationship. Just imagine, I'm sure this would have never happened, but just imagine for illustration's sake that last week there was a morning where I was insensitive to my wife. Can't imagine that, can you? And so after she left for school, she's a third grade teacher, I felt really bad about my behavior and my lack of empathy towards something that she had said to me. 
So I tried to call her, and I ended up leaving a cell phone message, just pretending. And in that message, I didn't say, Kathy, please forgive me for absolutely anything I may have said or done at any time that would have hurt you. I don't think that would have meant much to her, and it sure wouldn't have cost me very much. Instead, I said, Kathy, I'm so sorry. I was insensitive to you this morning when you told me about this particular thing, and I just want you to... I just want to ask you to forgive me, and I'm sorry. And I think the discipline of confession has become so weak in our lives, and it's even become weak in our church gatherings. Yet this practice has so much potential, and I think that's the real reason why God asks us to do it, because what it can do is it can heal us, and it can transform us, and it can free us. And part of the reason that we have so much trouble with confession, particularly any type of confession in the church, is that we want to hide our sin. We want to pretend that we're as pure as we think everybody else thinks we are. Richard Foster has a great line about this. This need to view the believing community, he says, as a fellowship of sinners instead of a fellowship of saints. Listen, every one of us has secrets. Every one of us looks better on the outside than we know to be true on the inside. Every single one of us needs grace. Every single one of us fails God on a regular basis. And so God instructs us to confess our sins, to admit where we've gone wrong, to be specific about it, to express our sorrow for these sins, and then to ask him to help us to avoid them in the future. And that's the discipline of confession, to stop pretending. There's a place for you and there's a place for me actually to be ashamed of our sin and to be broken about it. And here's what I love what George MacDonald says from a different century. It will not hurt us so long as we do not try to hide things. So long as we are ready to bow our heads in hearty shame where it is fit, uh, we should be ashamed. For to be ashamed is a holy and blessed thing. To be humbly ashamed is to be plunged into the cleansing bath of truth. So we're going to take some time in the service right now to just examine ourselves, to kind of come out of hiding from God. And then uh, we'll take a moment just before God, maybe with an attitude to, to, to share or confess an attitude or a thought, look back over the last several days, some words that we spoke that we're sorry for, maybe an action or a lack of action that we're sorry for. And so I hope you'll just take some time just as Karen and, and the worship team comes to sing over us and uh, do whatever you need to do to just be ready to be clean before God. There's several church confessions. Uh, confessions are often used in confirmation classes with kids, and what they'll do is they'll ask a question, the Westminster Catechism, what's the chief end of man? The answer is the chief end of man is to know God and to glorify him forever. And so they, these are ways that they ask questions that help you remember some theological truths. Here's what it says in the Heidelberg Confession under the question, who should come to the Lord's table? Listen to this. Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weaknesses is covered by the suffering and the death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. That's why you should come.